like we condemn ourselves to a fate of recurring nuclear crises, which is why we keep having nuclear crises. Since North Korea's first nuclear test in 2006, the United States' overarching strategy towards the country has been one of pressure through isolation. By imposing strict sanctions and avoiding sustained diplomatic dialogue with North Korea, U.S. policymakers have sought to pressure the country to unilaterally denuclearize. Dr. Van Jackson argues that this strategy has failed, is analytically flawed, and condemns the United States and North Korea to never-ending nuclear crises. Rather than forge forward with a failed approach, Van proposes a new strategy of diplomatically engaging North Korea with the goal of freezing their nuclear weapons program and stabilizing our bilateral relations. In this episode, I speak with Van to explore why he thinks U.S. strategy towards North Korea has failed and what he proposes as an alternative. Van is a senior lecturer in international relations at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Van is also an adjunct senior fellow with the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for a New American Security, CNAS. From 2009 to 2014, Van served as a strategist and policy advisor in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, where he worked on issues ranging from defense planning for U.S.-Asia strategy to nuclear negotiations with North Korea. Van has written two books on U.S.-North Korea relations, On the Brink, Trump, Kim, and the Threat of Nuclear War, and Rival Reputations, Coercion and Credibility in the U.S.-North Korea Relations. He's also the host of the hilarious and informative Undiplomatic podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. So Van, thank you so much for coming on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs today. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So to start off the podcast, the United States under the past four presidents has generally undertaken a foreign policy of isolation towards North Korea or a strategy of isolating North Korea from the international community. Would you kind of explain to our listeners why we've undertaken this strategy and what the aims have been? Yeah, I mean, so first of all, U.S. policymakers, I, I don't think that I've never I've rarely heard them characterize their own North Korea approach as one of isolating North Korea or containing North Korea. But that's the effect of the decisions. That's the effect of the approach. So like to characterize it as an isolation, isolating strategy uh, is probably more accurate than whatever um, like buzzwords or euphemism people might use to describe it. Because basically the strategy toward North Korea for a long time now has been to cut it off from the diplomatic community to not let it be a part of polite international society as a signal of opprobrium, right? As like you chose nukes, so you don't get to be a part of the club in good standing international community. And the material, that's the symbolic part of isolating them, uh, which I think they really feel. But the thing that they feel more and that is more material is, of course, the um, super stringent sanctions regime, right? More stringent than basically you know, any sanctions regime in the world except maybe Iran. And um, it is the act of cutting them off from all sources of funding and banking that might um, help their nuclear or missile or WMD programs. That's what really isolates them. And in the modern world, to cut a country off from the global political economy 
is really to isolate them in the most meaningful way imaginable. Uh, so that's like that's basically been the broad approach. But the if you were to ask like why we do it, that's where it starts to look really ridiculous, right? It's a weak theory of the case. Uh, there are the ultimate you know pie in the sky goal here is of course denuclearization. Another way of framing that is to say, or a rephrasing of that that's more accurate is to say unilateral disarmament of a much smaller adversary. And so we're going after this goal that is intrinsically fraught at best, realistically not possible. And our approach to doing it is to cut that country off, to force them to choose. The reason why that's a weak theory of the case is not just because it's like, okay, you pull this lever of isolating the country, and then you expect the outcome of denuclearization. Well, what's the causal logic that connects those things, right? And we don't have that causal logic. Step one, pull lever. Step two, three, four, five, uh, who knows? But step six, surely it's denuclearization. And when you think of it like that in a systematic way, it's garbage. Like it's analytically garbage. Uh, and it's it for the way I like uh, explain this is that the assumption that's embedded in this strategy of isolating North Korea is that North Korea will capitulate to pressure. The act of isolating them is an act of pressure, right? It's it's a regime of coercion, and that fundamentally misapprehends North Korean, you know character. Uh, they don't capitulate to pressure. We'll, we'll get into this more because it features in uh, some of the other questions that you're likely to raise. But basically, that's a bad assumption. And to build your theory of the case on a bad assumption is a, you know, house of cards strategy, like it's never going to work. Right. And then I love the idea that I, I really love the way you phrase of step one, pull the lever, step six, denuclearization doesn't really make sense. <laughs> um, it's perfect. But yeah. I guess, so you also argue that it's not just logically unsound, but also that it's dangerous. Mm. Um, could you kind of explain what your argument is for why this strategy is actually a dangerous one? Yeah. So um, the trip... So isolation is one of the effects of, of the strategy that we've had as default for a long time. It's not the only uh, element that is salient, right? Um, the A lot of these pressure mechanisms and the military signaling that we do, like it's all part of a package. And it's just that as a consequence of this, North Korea becomes isolated. So that traditional strategy overall the real risk is an increase in crisis instability that is otherwise avoidable. Like we condemn ourselves to a fate of recurring nuclear crises, which is why we keep having nuclear crises. Um, because basically th this approach, um, it forces us into this irreducible, it presents everything to us and to them as an irreducible conflict of interests, right? Because it's all about unilateral disarmament. Not, not mutual disarmament, obviously, unilateral disarmament, right? And on top of that, it's built on this approach that ignores uh, North Korean strategic culture, right? And so in my last book, I articulated this more deeply, but North Korean strategic culture that we've observed 
through thousands of interactions over decades is one of pressure for pressure. They respond reflexively to coercive pressure with defiance and counter pressure, escalation, right? This is brinkmanship is the most extreme version of it. And so by pursuing a strategy premised on the idea that pressure is going to get us something good, we have to ignore a long history that tells us to the contrary, that tells us they will respond unfavorably for us to, to pressure-based strategies. But that's the only strategy that we've been willing to pursue basically for a long time. Um, and so this traditional way of dealing with North Korea, it's just, it makes us live with more nuclear instability risks than we might want or that we could have. Um, and then on isolation specifically, the risks of isolating North Korea, um, you know, it basically it's like it's those risk, same risks associated with reducing your communications capacity in dangerous situations, right? So we reduce what we know, our ability to gain intelligence from North Korea and our signaling capacity toward North Korea in circumstances that matter the most which is like regime collapse, uh, a conflict spiral emanating from a crisis, and pressures for or favoring nuclear first use on North Korea's part. Those are like the three most dangerous kinds of situations that we can imagine with North Korea. And in all three types of situations, information will be at a premium. Contact points on the ground in Korea will be at a premium. Right? Our ability to communicate in multiple ways, not just with the B-52, will be at a premium in all of those situations if we have isolated them. And that's the effect of our policy. We're screwed. We have no we've we're, we we drift into situations of great danger with one hand tied behind our back, basically. Right. And honestly, Van, this is so interesting because um, last year in June. Uh, June 2020, Julia and I spoke with Jung Pak, Dr. Jung Pak mm. of the Brookings Institute. Then um, I believe she's now Deputy Assistant Secretary yeah. of, yeah, one of those high positions in state. And it, it seems that she has a completely different perspective on this. She, her argument was more, um, you know, North Korea responds more to pressure than engagement and, you know, giving. North Korea and a win through diplomacy is is bad strategy. So it's just it's fascinating to hear a really different perspective on the issue. Yeah, no, I mean we get on well. We like each other. She, she has a different read on on North Korea in general. But what I can point to with you know having written multiple books about this now is that history, the pattern of history, is like incontrovertibly on my side on this. They mm. pressure for pressure is their strategic culture. There's one instance in thousands of interactions where they did not respond to pressure with pressure in a tactical sense, at least. And like all the other times, it is pressure for pressure. The 2017 crisis is pressure for pressure. You know, right. it's brinkmanship for brinkmanship. Right. And so, Van, you have written a, a series of articles that basically seeks to address this, one of which was the your report for the U.S. Institute of Peace in September 2020, hmm. um, to basically 
have us to the United States' strategy is not to condemn us to the fate of, of nuclear crisis, which is great. Um, but your part of the argument that you make is based on um, your analysis of North Korea's military, the KPA. Mm. I was wondering if you could kind of brief our listeners on the KPA and why they're important as a kind of preface to your argument in that paper. Yeah, I mean, so in this is intuitive in one way because any hyper-militarist society is going to assign great value to its military institution, right? And that, that's very much the case in North Korea. It's the most militarized country in the world, arguably. And as such, the military holds a, a special place in society. And this is this starts with the very origins of who the North Korean people are, right, as guerrilla resistance fighters against Japanese imperialism. Um, and then they sustain a narrative of independence, um, especially in the face of like American empire going into the Cold War, even when um, they, they enjoy sort of Soviet patronage and they um, adap adapt themselves a lot to the model of this sort of Soviet military, they still occupy this central place um, and, and they're held up as heroes. Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, he holds himself up. His, his claim to legitimacy was the anti-Japanese guerrilla. And so he ensconced himself in uh, the KPA. These are like the leadership of the country came mostly out of the KPA. And then when Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung's son, took over uh, in the 90s, he hadn't served in the military, but he was surrounded by all these old codgers, the old brass who uh, were loyalists to his father, more or less. And um, he adopted this policy of uh, Sangun, military first. And the military first policy kind of, it was more than a policy. It was a permeating ethos of his regime. And so he venerated the military for uh, strategic reasons because he didn't want to end up an enemy of the military. And he lacked that sort of military legitimacy that his father had had. And then uh, Kim Jong-un comes to power in 2011 and the military, so he, adopt, he inherits a regime that has already put the military at the centerpiece of life, of culture, of society, of politics. They get first dibs on rations. They have the disproportionate uh, amount of the national budget. They are everywhere. They employ like 30% of the population, depending on like how you count reservists. It's it's a huge employer. It's intermingled with the economy. So the military controls particularly valuable sectors of the economy. It's everything. Military first is still there, even as Kim Jong-un has tried to sort of personalize and civilianize the regime. So um, to, to think that you can um, interact with North Korea, but somehow avoid its military is just to reject the very nature of like what North Korea is politically and institutionally, military first. Right. And so then that kind of brings us up to the core of your argument in the U.S. Institute of Peace report, which is 
you basically reject this strategy of isolation and instead say that we should seek to engage these um, these military elites. Could you kind of walk us through what that looks like and maybe your reasoning behind that proposed strategy? Yeah. So this report this requires a little like historicization of my work. Um, so this report came out in late 2020, but it followed a report that I had done with a different think tank, uh, Center for New American Security, where I'm still uh, affiliated. And at that, in that 2019 report with CNAS, I had laid out a kind of roadmap and making the strategic case for a kind of paradigm of arms control with North Korea. At the time, that was super taboo. But since then, it's actually become like pretty mainstreamed as a as a an approach to North Korea, and then people only disagree about like tactics of how you do it or sequencing and that kind of thing. But that that arms control report that preceded this one is is kind of essential because if you try to engage with the North Korean military, but you leave everything else about North Korea policy the same you're probably not going to get very far. Um, you, if, if you can engage the North Korean military in a sustained way, I think there are benefits that can flow from that, however marginal, even if it's the only change you make. But if it's the only change you make and the rest of the policy is basically isolating the regime, I don't think you're going to get anything. Like I don't think they will do it. I don't think North Korea will meet us halfway. So you're sabotaging yourself if you're going to try to hold everything constant except for this one variable of you know mill to mill diplomacy, um, and so that's a, that's an important setup or precursor because the way I think about doing uh, what I call national security diplomacy, which is like mill mill diplomacy plus uh, engagement of the larger national security sector of both countries, so like intelligence and everything else. That is, um, that's the way to get the most bang for the buck. And like one of the things that's true about strategy generally is like there is no tactic that's going to deliver disproportionate effects if you do it in isolation, right? But if you coordinate tactics, if you coordinate action for a kind of concentrated effect or for synergy, that's when you get disproportionate gains out of a single action. So it's like what you do in context that matters. And so in this case, it's very, this is very much how I view the mill mill thing. A lot of potential benefits can accrue, but the benefits will be much more marginal and or less if you try to do it on its own. And it's going to be much more successful and much more bang for the buck if it's in the context of a number of moves that have the same valence or that are coordinated together. So Van, I'm wondering if you could kind of now that we know that these two reports build off each other, could you walk us through the kind of actual process that you lay out in the U.S. Institute of Peace report of actual engagement? I think you had three phases. Um, in the beginning, there has to be something that greases the skids. And so the way that's worked normally with North Korean negotiations is using the uh, prisoners of war missing in action negotiations, which is viewed as a historical, sacred, kind of humanitarian gesture. Um, 
even though it, it has kind of political signaling value. And so by, and it's, it's like a bureaucratic negotiation type thing, like high level politicos are not involved in the negotiation of remains recovery from the Korean war. Right. But it's this thing that shows that on some level we are willing to work together for a common purpose that is uh, framed as apolitical. But just the fact that we're doing it is uh, it, it, it like winks at one another to say, like, OK, we're in a sufficiently goodwill space to try and get like working level nuclear diplomacy going. And so oftentimes, the, and this was very much the case in the Obama days too, when I was in the Pentagon, the, we used the POW MIA as like an indirect signaling tool to say, okay, I think we're in a mode where we can engage productively. And so we start that process. And if we do that, and we use the opportunity to communicate that we're, we're interested in uh, genuinely pursuing a different kind of relationship than we've had in our rivalrous past that uh, we can signal to them, we can not even signal, we can tell them directly during these kinds of discussions about remains recovery from the Korean War, we can say, hey, let's have a mill-to-mill dialogue, recognizing that the way the North Korean system works is very much top-down so we do it the opposite way. Like we send out some sucker desk officer to probe at the working level that doesn't go anywhere in their like Confucian hierarchical, you know, militarist society. So you got to go top down. So it, for the military, it makes a lot of sense to try and have a kind of secretary of defense counterpart meeting with the minister of the people's armed forces. And if you can get that going, um, that's going to require some sort of exchange of letters between the secretary and the minister. There's going to need to be like working level coordination through uh, the existing channel for this on the military side is the uh, UN command, which we've used in the past for like routine military communications. Uh, and if we can work this, this is something that happens in parallel with or irrespective of the nuclear diplomacy. like So the foreign ministry and the State Department doing that thing. Um, you could have these this uh, MPAF, Ministry of the People's Armed Forces, KPA engagement as an alternative or complementary path to interaction. And because the military is so central in North Korean decision-making, um, far more so than the foreign ministry, there's a chance that they would want to negotiate nukes itself via the military rather than the foreign ministry. We go to the foreign ministry because we're mirror imaging. It's like, well, foreign policy is the State Department's province. Well, that's not really how it works in North Korea. You know, like the foreign ministry in North Korea is they're barbarian handlers. They exist to play us and extract what they can. They're on orders, you know, and the military would be on orders too, but they have more throw weight in the internal system. Um, and so if you can get a sort of secretary to minister interaction on the military side, that may lead to a kind of common agenda of 
what we can talk about, at what levels, with whom. Um, and from there, we can expand beyond the military to be like a larger national security uh, enterprise. And the the virtue of this would would be to like if would be that if it were successful, it would give us many touch points in their system rather than the current bottleneck of one to two touch points with one literally one to two individuals in their system, none of whom are like particularly empowered anyways relative to Kim Jong-un. So um, that's the, the basic idea. I think I did have that. One of the arguments I made in that U.S. Institute of Peace report was that like there's many models for how you could structure a process of engagement, and I had this kind of illustrative one where it starts with remains recovery, and then it goes to secretary to minister meeting, and then it broadens out. But the the core principles driving whatever model for engagement that you have, um, I believe I sketched those out to be. Um, one, that engagement needs to be a process and not an ad hoc decision. We had this covert channel with North Korea since like 2009. It, it seemed to pay off in no way whatsoever. But one of the reasons for that looks like, because I'm not talking out of school here, this is public information, by the way, but it looks like we were only approaching North Korea for one-off meetings as desperation moves. Like the exigencies of the moment were sort of forcing our hand. And so we would reach out in a moment of extreme need. And that's a really dumb way to engage because like, why are they going to even grant us a meeting, let alone grant us our request? Uh, so don't reach out as an ad hoc thing. Create a process. Expect that you're trying to create uh, the habit of interaction, right? Uh, it's got to be top down. I said that. Uh, it needs to be institutionalized, as in depoliticized as much as possible, um, because one of the things that we've seen with like U.S.-China mill-mill is that China manipulates the mill-mill interactions uh, as like a signaling tool. And there's pros and cons for that, actually. But um, it means that the mill-mill the interactions themselves, the relationship is brittle. So to the extent that you can like genuinely create those habits of interaction, depoliticize it, that's how you can start getting some of the advantages from it. And then it needs to be broad. So it needs to be not choke points, not bottlenecks. It needs to be broader than narrowly KPA and um, DOD itself. It needs to be like uh, larger stakeholders, broader stakeholders in both systems. And so then... To kind of recap or summarize where we are in our conversation right now, feel free to jump in if I get anything wrong. But to kind of summarize, we've said that the US has taken this policy of isolating North Korea for pretty much as long as it has a policy towards North Korea. And you are basically arguing that it condemns us to nuclear crises because it it skips the steps of, of, of uh, in between uh, pressure and actual denuclearization. And then you say, okay, if you look at North Korea, the kind of power brokers that are important are the military in part, and we should create this process of engagement with these military elites and kind of eventually move towards the kind of institutionalization of this through national security diplomacy with the goal of 
addressing the nuclear issue as well through um, this risk realism arms control approach. Is that a kind of good summary of what we've talked about so far? Yeah, I think so. And like, I, I don't want to throw shade at uh, Jung Pak at all. Like, don't misread this. But of course, of course. If, if you had her view of North Korea, then the recurring crises and the failure of US North Korea policy for 30 years would be utterly inexplicable except to caricature and say North Korea is evil and that's why. Like North Korea is the root of all evil. That's the only way that you can square the circle for like explaining reality. Otherwise you're left with just lots of puzzles and lots of mysteriously failed policies. Like one of the things that, I mean, one of the reasons why this whole arms control angle that I've been promoting has gotten traction among like free thinking humans is because it's built on an analysis that's realistic, that actually accounts for, it tells a story that's accurate about how we got to now. And the, mm. the normal sort of conventional beltway wisdom about North Korea, it's reductionist and it's Manichaean. It's North Korea's effing bad, dude. And mm. that's crap, you know? Right. But okay, Vin, I'm wondering if I'm wondering if you could play maybe devil's advocate to your own argument. Are there are there risks to engagement with North Korea? And you know, could they just could we seek to engage North Korea and then they cheat us as as happens often in terms of uh, when trying to do kind of international nuclear compliance inspections yeah. and things like that? Yeah. What are the downsides? No, great, great question. Um, so there's a couple I, I've had to, of course, think through this uh, many times over. Uh, and, you know, any good argument, this is important for essay writing too, frankly, like any good argument will have rejoinders to the best counter arguments, you know, like that's how you strengthen your case best. And so, you know, when you talk about the risks of engaging North Korea, particularly on the uh, military side, like the most common argument against is moral hazard, right? Like, I don't know how many times I've heard, well, if you engage with Pyongyang, you're rewarding bad behavior because whatever happened at uh, T0 or time zero was inevitably bad behavior. So whatever you do at time one, if it's positive, it's going to be rewarding what they did at time zero, right? And so that's that's the logic. And so you don't want to create that moral hazard. And there's like there's many things wrong with that view, I think. Um, one is that it's a bad frame. It tries to commoditize interaction. And that amounts to self punishment, which is like goes back to my earlier argument about the risks of isolating North Korea, right? We harm it's a self-harm thing, aside from you know, misapprehending the, the character of North Korean strategic culture. But the bigger thing now, like there used to be an argument. So I'm arguing that the frame is bad on, on moral hazard arguments, but that was something you could debate in the past. What Trump has done inadvertently was to moot moral hazard arguments against engaging North Korea, because he proved that you can engage North Korea at the highest, most lavish, most disgusting levels, and it there is no cost to be paid for it. 
the Republic still stands. There's been no war. Might have even marginally been a good thing, right? Um, and I've been very critical of the whole summit year of summits and all that in the past. But the Trump's interactions with North Korea proved or like invalidated the moral hazard argument. And that was like the most powerful critique against North Korean engagement in the past. Um, so like it, it, he showed that it's like, well, there's no there's no harm in this. And no matter how much you engage North Korea, it's not going to be like more gratuitous than what Trump did. You know, that's crazy. Uh, there is an argument that North Korea would, you know, deceive us in some way. And there's there's two ways of reading that kind of argument. One is that they would deceive us strategically in terms of like what their actual sort of nuclear strategy is or what their nuclear posture is. And that's why it's important to understand they their, their basic strategy is brinkmanship. If you're thinking about this in a nuclear posture sense, like the VIP and Narang stuff, their their default nuclear posture is asymmetric escalation. So it's like you use nukes first in order to compensate for conventional military inferiority. Uh, and you're, you hope to extract coercive value from that, right? So you use a little bit early so you don't have to use a lot later. And also if it goes, if you really go to the mats, everybody loses and you lose the most. So like asymmetric escalation is kind of their default posture. That's also the most dangerous posture uh, of the various nuclear postures. And it is, uh, it, it, resonates because North Korea doesn't think in terms of like a typology. They just do what they do. And what what they do and what they understand works is brinkmanship. And a brinkmanship strategy has to appear to be true at all times. So they would not want us, they would not want to deceive us about their willingness to go nuclear in a war anytime, anywhere. And so their starting point is so extreme and so maximal when it comes to their nuclear strategy, they don't want to deceive us into us thinking that they are more restrained, right? Because that relaxes us. And a brinkmanship strategy requires us to be like on alert and worried. Uh, and so like in the nuclear, nuclear strategy realm, they don't want to deceive us like that, right? But then on the diplomatic side, there is an argument that like North Korea will deceive us in the sense that they will break promises toward denuclearization or whatever. Um, but the, and that actually may be true. Like, I think that there's something to that, but we have to try in order to find out. And the thing that is definitely true is that a broken diplomatic promise where they pocket some concession of ours is not strategically costly to us. And this is the thing that I feel like the beltway is most warped about. We don't take deep diplomatic risks, but we take almost unlimited military risks. And like, why, in what world does that even make sense? Like the, the idea that we were to give sanctions relief or something to North Korea, and then that ultimately they don't reciprocate by fulfilling a promise that they made to us, let's say, about closing down a nuclear reactor or something. Okay, are we... How much worse off are we than we were before we gave the sanctions relief? Did we buy stability in the meantime? Did we prove 
a, did we falsify a particular theory of action for North Korea? Like, have we clarified our own options in the process? Yeah. So like the whole broken promises angle on North Korean deception is kind of BS. Um, or it like doesn't, it doesn't weigh risks in a rational way. We shouldn't be willing to take more military risks than we would be diplomatic risks. Um, so yeah, like those are the major risks of engaging and I don't think they hold up as critiques. Yeah, that then last thing, because we're, we're kind of pushing where we normally like to keep our time for our podcast, mm. but, um, so I guess maybe a listener might think to themselves, didn't president Trump try engagement with North Korea? Wasn't that the whole purpose of the two summits that they held? And it didn't get us anything, but we yeah. did kind of recognize Kim Jong-un on the international stage. How is that kind of different from what you're proposing? So this is why it's important to sequence the arguments mill-mill um, following arms control, right? Um, there are like in the way I'm presenting it anyways, it does like you could pursue mill-mill on its own, I guess. But I think that if you try to do just symmetry, or just mill-mill engagement, or just nuclear diplomacy, you're misunderstanding that like in the North Korean worldview, and from Kim Jong-un's perspective, this is a global kind of thing. It's about the relationship first. What is the valence of this relationship? Oh, we're enemies? Well, that's everything I need to know. That means I need to annihilate, be willing to annihilate myself in order to get my way. I need to take from you in order to give to me at all times. Why? Because you are my enemy, bro. And that's everything. There can be no trust between enemies, right? And so if you try to have personal diplomacy or mill-mill diplomacy or whatever, and you're holding everything else in North Korea policy constant, you are sabotaging the engagement itself. The engagement itself works only through coordinated action, only through other visible signals that lend credibility to your communication of uh, a willingness to negotiate in good faith, to do things in a different way than in the past, to, to signal credibly that we are different, we understand the situation is different. We're not suckers, but we are willing to do things very differently in the past, and we're willing to prove it. How? by doing a lot of stuff that we're not willing to normally look at, ranging from sanctions relief to military exercises to executive orders, restraining nuclear deployments, right? Uh, I think I said sanctions relief already. There's just so much that mill-mill, which we've never opened up with North Korea, we do all this together and the sum becomes more than the, what is it? The sum becomes more than the whole of its parts. I can't remember what the phrase is, but it's something about more than the sum of the parts. <laughs> yes, I think that's. I think you got it right, Van. Um, so I just want to thank you so much for for chatting with me today. It's been fantastic, and I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate the kind of change in pace and you know differing opinions that we that you've presented today. So really, thank you for coming on. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on, man. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook 
for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.